We come this morning to hear the word of the Lord, and as we prepare to sit under the preaching of God's word, let's bow and let's pray once more. Father in heaven, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would humble us all now to hear your word, to receive your word, to put our faith in you and in the truth of your word. We pray that you would encourage our hearts and minds this morning through what we hear. We pray you'd point us to how much you have loved your people through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Years ago, I heard this quote when reading a a book by A.W. Tozer. He said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In the book of Genesis, we get a chance to fill our, our minds with the truth of God and how he's revealed himself in his word. What we see in the book of Genesis is a God who's holy, who's perfect in righteousness, who's high and lifted up. A God who was lacking nothing, but in his grace and for his glory, created everything and everyone we see around us by the power of his word. We see a God who said, let there be light, and there was light. We see a a picture of God that he's holy and exalted and lifted up. And then we get to a place like Genesis chapter 15, and we see this same God who is transcendent also draws near to his people. And in Genesis chapter 15, he drew near to his servant, Abram. He draws near as a tender father. He draws near in grace and gentleness. He welcomes questions offered up to him in prayer. He's a God who's so gracious to give his word. And so we come this morning to have our minds shaped about who this God is as we look to him and his word. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 15, we're going to be in the second half of this chapter this morning in verses 7 through 21. Uh, If you want to take the Pew Bible in front of you, take that Bible, open up to page 11, page 11 in the Pew Bible. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you as a gift. Uh, Talk to one of our our members. Maybe you're invited by one of our members this morning. Talk to them about reading the Bible and understanding more of who God is. Or afterwards, come out to the guest tent at the top of the ramp and talk to one of our staff or pastors. We'd love to share more with you about how to know God and His Word more. We're going to be in Genesis 15, 7 through 21, continuing on in our normal sermon series this morning. Let me read through all of this passage as we begin our time together. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Genesis chapter 15, we see a lot of, of imagery here in this particular chapter, but one word that stands out in this chapter is a word we've seen once before in the book of Genesis. It's the word covenant. A covenant uh, was introduced with Abram back in chapter 12. The first time we saw a covenant was in chapter 9, God's covenant with Noah. But back in chapter 12, a covenant was introduced, promises that God gave to Abram. And we looked at all those I will statements of the promise that I will bless you, I will make you into a mighty nation. God gave promises to Abram of all that he would do. And here in chapter 15, God's covenant with Abram is ratified. So we have a scene with blood, with sacrifice, filled with imagery, and all of that points to a covenant ceremony. It's the, again, the second time in Genesis we find the word covenant. And back in chapter 9, when we went through that message, we thought a little bit about what a covenant is. So let's review that just for a moment. But most simply, a covenant, when we think about it just in broad terms, even outside of the Bible, a covenant's a, a contract or a type of agreement between two parties. Tom Schreiner put it like this, a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. So covenants exist outside of the Bible. We know that covenants exist in our lives, that marriage is a type of covenant. Two parties coming together, taking vows, becoming one. We know that when you join our church, you sign a church covenant. When you become one with this body, promising uh, what you are to do here as a member of this church. Now, in the story of the Bible, though, we see a story of God's redemption of sinful man that unfolds through these type of covenants. And biblical covenants are a bit different than the covenants that I just mentioned. When it comes to covenants in the Bible, we refer to these as divine covenants. They're covenants initiated by, by God. Covenants that are all of grace. Covenants that form a, a binding relationship that is sovereignly administered by blood. And what results is a, a relationship that comes with a blessing and it comes with obligation. So when we consider these biblical covenants, like what we see in Genesis chapter 15, we see that these covenants, they're a structure that where the story of the Bible unfolds throughout history, tracing God's promised redemption. What he promised all the way back in chapter 3 Verse 15 unfolds in the Bible in covenants. We see a covenant with Adam, a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, here in chapter 15 with Abram, uh, with Moses, with David, and then finally the new covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sin. So verses 7 through 21 focus on Abram seeking a guarantee from God that this promised land that God promised him back in chapter 12 would indeed belong to him and to his descendants. And the Lord answers that request for assurance by making a covenant with Abram. So God's promise guaranteed by this covenant. Now, when you first read through this, maybe if you were preparing yourself this past week and reading through this passage, this doesn't seem at first glance to be a beautiful 
picture of God's grace. It might seem a bit confusing. There's a lot of blood and sacrifice and animals cut in half and darkness. And what exactly is going on here? But as we make our way through this passage this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I think you'll know the beauty that exists in this passage. We have a beautiful picture of God's grace, of God's saving action as we take a closer look at God ratifying this covenant with Abram. Well, for our outline this morning, as we make our way through this passage, I want you to see two points of assurance. Two points of assurance that we find in this passage. That's what Abram's looking for, is assurance of God's faithfulness to his promise. And the first point is in verses 7 through 11. Assurance is found in who God is and in what he's done. It's the first point of assurance we see in verses 7 through 11. Assurance is found in who God is and in what he has done. Something encouraging to Christians in this passage is that God comforts his people and God brings assurance. He is high and lifted up. He's the God that we worship as holy, holy, holy. And he is a tender father who draws near to his people. And that's what he's doing in Genesis 15. In verses 1 through 6, last week we found, saw assurance of God's promise to give Abram a son. That's what he was doing in verses 1 through 6. Indeed, assuring Abram, I will give you a son, a, an heir through which this mighty nation will come. And then starting in verse 7, there is confirmation of God's promise of giving land. Back in chapter 12, God had promised Abram land and descendants. He promised that he would make Abram into a, a mighty nation with a great name and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But a mighty nation would need to come from a descendant. And a mighty nation would need land to fill. And in the first six verses of chapter 15, the Lord revisited these promises, telling Abram, I'm going to give you a son for an heir. Do not fear. Trust me for protection. Trust me for provision. And then in verse 7, God's gracious assurance continued as he drew near to Abram. Look at verse 7. It's a declaration of who God is and what he's done. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now this language, this formula of language, it's familiar. You'll find it later on in the Pentateuch and Exodus chapter 20 verse 2. The narrator of Genesis, Moses, recounting there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, a a prologue or a preamble to God giving him the Mosaic law or the the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, chapter 2, verse 2 reads this way, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, God drew near to Abram, and the assurance that he brought to Abram is, Abram, remember who I am. I am the Lord. Now, you see that that word Lord in all capital letters there in your copy of God's Word. And that signifies the Hebrew name Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. It's God's personal and intimate name. It's the name through which God reveals Himself to His people living in covenant with Him. And He draws near to Abram and says, Abram, you want assurance? Look to me. Remember who I am. I'm the Lord. I'm the one who created everything that you saw around you. I'm the Lord who called you out of Ur. Now, if you remember, Ur was a land of darkness. It was a land of slavery to sin. It was a a pagan land. Back then, Abram was a a pagan worshiper. He worshiped false gods, praying to the moon along with his 
family members. We don't see any evidence of, of Abram deciding to leave that land of slavery and to go follow this God, Yahweh. In fact, what we see is God calling him out of that land, opening up his eyes to see the one true God, calling Abram to follow him to a land that God would show him. And Abram followed. Abram's a, a model of faith and an example of faith to us, but we've said that Genesis presents people like they really are. Abram's faith is to be a model for our faith, but we see that Abram is not without flaws. He's not without fear. He's not without struggle, and even one like Abram, commended for his faith and following God out of her, even one like Abram, recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, commended for his faith, even one like him, was in need of assurance. So if you're a Christian here this morning and you come to God's Word looking for assurance, we see that's a good thing, that we can identify with Abram who was looking for confirmation of God's promise. Years had passed by. He still had no son. Years had passed by. The Canaanites were still in possession of the land that God had shown him and promised him. If he had no son, how would he become a nation? If he wouldn't become a nation, what good would land be? And the assurance that God offered to Abram was a gracious reminder of who he is and what he had done for Abram. It's like the Lord was saying, remember who I am, Abram. I'm the Lord. I, I am the Lord, exalted, lifted on, on high. And the Lord was saying something like, Abram, if you want to fight against fear, remember who I am. Remember what I've already done for you. Look forward in faith to what I have promised that I most certainly will do. And isn't that how it works for you if you're here this morning and you're a Christian? If you want to fight against fear and doubt in your life, those are real things. Those are real struggles that we confess, that we struggle with far too often. But they're struggles to come before the Lord with, that we can identify with Abram in. If we want to fight against fear and doubt, remember who the Lord is. Remember your salvation. Remember what God's done in your life. Remember your testimony of God's grace saving you. Remember what your life looked like before Christ. Remember the circumstances that God used to bring the good news, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his death and resurrection to you. Remember the path that your life was on prior to that moment. We just sang about that in the hymn, All I Have is Christ. Remember what your life looked like before Christ. Remember how gracious God was in sending someone to you. Might have been mom or dad. Might have been a classmate. Might have been someone you met in college. Might have been a coworker who shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you. Remember God's powerful work through His Holy Spirit of opening up your heart to believe that good news, to receive that good news. Remember that on that day of conversion, God filled you with the Holy Spirit. Remember that it's God who's at work inside of you to follow Him by faith. Remember the fruit in your life that God has brought all by the power of His Holy Spirit. Remember your conversion. Remember your salvation. Remember God's good work in you. Look back and then look forward in faith. That's what God called Abram to do for assurance. And that's how assurance works in the life of a Christian. You see at the heart of this scene in chapter 15, Abram's asking of the Lord how it is that he can know that he will possess the land. He's looking for assurance. And how did God respond to that question? He welcomed it. He wasn't bothered by it. 
He wasn't frustrated with Abram. He he didn't view that as some sort of request that was pestering him and drawing him away from more important things. God welcomed the question, how am I to know? Abram wasn't condemned by God for asking such a thing. Rather, God drew near and assured Abram. So don't hear Abram's request in verse 8 as as sinful. Don't hear it as doubting. God had just given him assurance from his word, and Abram wanted more. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to want more of God. It's a good thing to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to believe you more. I want to trust you more. Help my unbelief. And so Abram asked, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? That's actually a question of faith because he's turning to the Lord to be assured. He knows the place to go to find assurance. He believes that God is gracious. He believes that God hears him. So this is actually a question of faith. He was asking for assurance. The Lord had just comforted him in his fear, and the Lord reminded Abram of who he was. And Abram is welcome to approach the Lord and ask for more assurance. So brother and sister, it's a good thing to turn to God and to ask him for more. A good request that you can pray for your own soul this week. God, help me to grow in my faith. God, help me to know your word and to believe it. God, help my family. Help those around me. Help help my church family. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us not to just become familiar with your word. But God, grow us as we hear your word to be changed, to grow in faith. You see, no one has a faith that's so strong that you do not need assurance. Not a person in this room. And there are some people in this room, I know you, you've you've got a strong faith. God has been so gracious to strengthen your faith over your years of walking with Him. But we're looking here in Scripture at Abram, the father of faith, recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, commended for his faith. If that guy needed assurance, well, Christian, so do you. You see, don't view the need for assurance as something negative, as a as a disappointment or a, a letdown, or maybe something that you're afraid to confess to God. See it rather as a necessity for spiritual strength. You see, the way to spiritual strength, the way to grow in your faith, is to confess your lack of faith to God and to ask Him to grow you in your faith. And when we see this story of Abram in Genesis 15, I think we can identify that like Abram, we find ourselves in regular need of assurance from God and His Word. Well, Christian, I wonder this week, how often did you seek assurance from God's Word this past week? You see, Abram came to the Lord to find assurance, and God was gracious to give him His Word. And God still speaks to His people today. He speaks through His Word. And when we open up the pages of the Bible, that's God speaking to us as His people. If we want to grow in our faith, we need to open up our Bibles. Well, what about Sunday mornings? Have you thought about our meetings on Sunday morning as a time of regular assurance of our faith? Brother and sister, you will not, I really believe this with all of my heart. I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor and I want to encourage your church attendance. I really don't think we will finish the race if we give up meeting together as a people of God. See, the writer of Hebrews commends that in chapter 10. The way forward for us to grow in our faith is to come together as a body. And when your faith is weak, when you're struggling with doubt, I want you to know this is the best place 
you can be on Sunday morning. This is a place you're welcome to be. It's a place to hear God's Word, to be lifted up by His people, to be strengthened in your faith. Think about today's service. We've sung assurance from God's Word of His deep love for His people. If you've struggled to know the love of God this week, you were reminded of it as we sung to one another this morning. We've sung the truth of assurance of God's mercy towards sinners who turn toward Him. For those who've struggled with sin this week, we're reminded of God's mercy, that He welcomes sinners to turn to Him. We've marveled in the assurance found in the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away our sins. And so if you're a Christian and you're struggling with guilt this morning for sin that you've already repented of, you're reminded of the assurance of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away your sins and to present you ready to stand before the God who created you. You see, this whole worship service points to the glory of God, to His mercy to His sinful people through His Son, Jesus Christ. All of this proclaimed by the word of the Lord. So if we're to grow in our faith, if our faith is to be strengthened as Christians, let's turn to God. Let's seek assurance found in His Word. Brothers and sisters, the most important thing you can do this week is to open up your Bibles, to to read it, to read it with your family, to read it with those that you live with. If the only time you open up your Bible is here on Sunday mornings, you're missing the point. This is meant to be a meal for us that would nourish us and strengthen us by God's Word, but to grow our appetite to be in God's Word this week. And if we can think about God's Word as God speaking to His people, that's when a quiet time gets exciting. Now hear me correctly, quiet times, devotionals, Lord, they're not always going to be exciting. We're not always going to feel this desire to be in God's Word. We are far too quick to give ourselves to watching YouTube videos and going to social media rather than opening up the Word of God. And that's why it's a discipline. But if we can understand the heart behind the discipline that we want to know God, we want to hear His Word. We want to be shaped in our minds and our hearts by the Word of God. That that Christianity is a religion that's all about what you're filling your mind with. It's not a religion of emptying your mind. That's not the Christian message. It's rather fill your mind. Fill your mind with the truth of God's Word. Fill your mind with, with what He's done through His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, brother and sister, what have you filled your mind with this past week? And we've got a new week, Lord willing, this week. And a great commitment is to leave here this morning, maybe talk to someone you came with, talk to another member and say, hey, could you pray for me this week that I would give myself more to filling my mind with the truth of God's Word? Maybe you need to get up and have a cup of coffee with someone or go to lunch with someone and talk about the Bible, talk about the sermon we heard this morning together. How can you give yourself more to finding assurance from God in His Word? Well, the answer to Abram's request in verse 8 for assurance is not one you would think automatically would be that encouraging. The Lord cuts a covenant with Abram, and in verse 9, he gives him a list to go and gather a group of animals. So a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, so three years old would be uh, full-grown, mature animals, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So again, the question, how am I to know? Well, go get this list of animals. To a a modern reader, that might seem a bit strange to us. How is that going to be encouraging? Well, all these animals later on in the Pentateuch, we see they're used in mosaic sacrifice. So these were all types of animals to be offered on an altar before the Lord. And God involved Abram in the preparation of assurance. So in verse 10, this cutting of the animals in half 
formed a type of aisleway with the carcasses of these animals. Again, not a pretty scene. This would have been a, a bloody path, a, a bloody mess. So Abram's request for assurance was a full covenant. The response was the, the Lord saying, cut a covenant here. We're going to, to come together in a relationship. So again, a modern listener, this can seem really like a strange way to answer this. How is that supposed to be encouraging? A bunch of like a animal carcasses and, and blood. It sounds a, a little bit disgusting to modern ears. But this wouldn't have seemed strange to Abram. He would have known immediately what was happening here, that God was making a covenant with him. He would have known that this was a covenant-making ceremony. Because in, in that day, when two parties wanted to come together, they didn't have written contracts. What were used were the halves of sacrificial animals, and two parties would ratify that covenant by walking through that aisleway in between those halves. That's how rulers and kings back in that day would covenant with one another. Now, in chapter 14, we saw an alliance of kings from the west and kings from the, the east. They were kind of bound together. And uh, the way this worked in that day is that if one king were to enter into a covenant with another king, the more powerful king would set the terms. And then both kings would walk together down this bloody aisleway of halved animals, much like what is described here in verses 9 through 10. And that was a ceremony to confirm the covenant. The, the visual message that would be communicated in such a bloody scene like this is that may what happen to these animals be done to me if I am unfaithful and break this covenant. It was a pledge of fidelity. It was a, a pledge of, of loyalty. And, and blessing was brought for obedience and curse brought for unfaithfulness. So this bloody scene of halved animals served as a visual of the, of the hypothetical death of one who would break the covenant. Now, while this scene might seem strange even to New Covenant Christians, this was a picture of love. God's love for Abram. His assurance to Abram, you are beloved of God. The God who created the heavens and the earth, I love you. And I'm ratifying my relationship with you here. And for those who have come to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, while this might read like an intense and graphic scene, consider Christian how much encouragement and assurance we find in blood and sacrifice. Did it occur to you this morning that we sang the hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus? I don't know of anyone else in town singing a song like that. And if you walked in here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe that sounds strange to you. You've got a lot of Christians here singing about blood. And we're thanking God for, for blood. And, and that sounds a bit disgusting. And children are in there. Why are we singing about blood? What is so beautiful about blood? Well, the blood that we praise God for is the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We understand the beauty of that blood is that it paid the pardon for our sin. We understand the beauty of that blood is that it washes the sins away for all who would turn and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, we marvel in the blood because without the blood, there's no forgiveness. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Without the blood of Jesus Christ being shed for us, there is no resurrection of Jesus. There is no reigning king this morning. And so we look back to the blood of Jesus shed for us, buried, dead, and on the third day, God raising him from the dead. And we're filled with hope. And we sing about this blood. And we come to find assurance in the blood of Jesus Christ shed 
for sinners. You see, this covenant service, it was a demonstration of, of God's faithfulness, of His grace. For those who are in Christ, we understand that ultimately this covenant back in Genesis 15 would point to a, a better covenant that would come through a descendant of Abraham, through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So think about this. God gave Abram promises from his word that he could remember and recount. He gave him visuals like the stars in the sky and the dust on the ground to remember his faithfulness. And then God demonstrated his love to Abram through this sacrifice of animals. And for those in the new covenant, we understand that God's given us his word. He's given us the truth of the gospel. He's told us about his great love for his people for all who would trust in Jesus. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we see that God not only tells us of His love, but He demonstrates His love. And that He's shown His love in the greatest picture of love that the world could ever comprehend is the love of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying for sinners. There is no greater demonstration of God's love than that. And that's why we come on Sunday morning to remember God's love, to find assurance in Christ to be reminded of the love of Jesus, how deep God's love for us is in Christ, to be reminded of who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. Let's consider a second point of assurance found in verses 12 through 21. Assurance is found in God Himself paying the price. Verses 12 through 21, a second point of assurance. Assurance is found in God Himself paying the price. As Abram prepared this covenant ceremony, we see in verse 12 that he fell into a deep sleep. And you may read that and wonder, how is Abram going to sleep in the middle of all this? Like, I know that was probably hard work, getting those animals and cutting them in half. I'm sure you're tired, but the Lord has, has come to you. He's speaking to you, and you're falling into a deep sleep. Now, we've seen a deep sleep before. If you remember the same language used of Adam going into a deep sleep as God created woman from the man. Later on, we'll see Abram's grandson, Jacob, go into a deep sleep as God appeared to him in a dream. So whatever it is that's going on here with this deep sleep and great darkness, it's imagery that highlights God's holiness and coming and presenting himself to a sinful man. Remember that when Jesus died on the cross, darkness filled the afternoon sky in that moment of holiness. So the imagery here is one of holiness and righteousness as the God of heaven condescended to meet with sinful man. Most likely this deep sleep brought on Abram being overwhelmed in meeting with a holy God. Who can stand in his presence? And he falls into a, a deep sleep. As Abram slept, he heard the Lord foretell of the future of his descendants in verses 13 through 16. If you look at verse, 16, verse 13, rather, there's something God wanted Abram to know for certain. The future would not be all roses. You'll have offspring, Abram, but they're going to sojourn. In other words, they will wander around in a land that's not theirs. They will be servants that will know four centuries of affliction. There'll be 400 years of oppression. This was looking forward to what would happen 
to Abram's descendants in Egypt, where Abram's offspring would sojourn through a land that was not theirs and would be enslaved in a long period by the Egyptians. Now, notice that, that God's assurance to Abram doesn't exempt him or his descendants from trial and from trouble. See, if you and I go looking for assurance in God's Word that nothing bad is going to happen to us as long as we make the right choices, as long as we walk in worship and obedience to faith, you're not going to find that type of assurance in the Word of God. That's not the assurance God gives His people. That's not the assurance that we know as Christians. The the assurance for Abram, what, what God wanted Abram to know for certain, what He wanted Abram to believe is this, none of that hardship, none of that evil, not even your own death, would be a threat to God fulfilling His promise. Rather, all of that hardship, all of that evil, even your own death, is going to be a part of God's divine plan. He wanted Abram to know that this God who ruled over everything and everyone, in God's divine plan, at the right time, He would act to fulfill His promises to Abram and his offspring. At the right time, God would act in justice. And in verse 14, we see God promising that He would bring judgment on the nation, enslaving Abram's offspring. God would bless Abram's offspring by delivering them out of Egypt, just like He did with Abram. And just like He did with Abram, they would come out of Egypt with great possessions. God Himself would see to it that He would bring them out. And then in verses 15 and 16, God promised Abram that the land one day would go to his descendants. Though Abram himself would not possess the land, Abram would die, he would be buried at a good old age, and eventually this fourth generation would inherit the land once the Amorites, or the Canaanites, were driven out of the land. Through all of those trials and all of those hardships, God was affirming to Abram that he was with him, ruling over him, working for his glory and for the good of Abram and his descendants. And then in verse 17, we find more imagery that that Abram saw there. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. So a a bloody aisleway, Abram's asleep, and what goes down the bloody aisleway is this fire pot and a flaming torch. Both of those are symbolic of the Lord. You see, God's presence is, is often associated with fire in the Scriptures. So to the original audience, they would have heard this, and they knew that God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. During the wilderness wandering, God appeared to his people in a pillar of cloud and fire. On Mount Sinai, he appeared to Moses by smoke and fire. So the smoking fire pot and flaming torch was a manifestation of the presence of God. And if there's any mystery in this passage, then verse 18 clearly states what this meant and what was happening here. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, what stands out there in verse 17 is that Abram did not pass between the pieces. Only the Lord did. The the symbolism here is showing that if God were to break His word, He is promising He would become like these slaughtered animals. You see, it was God Himself who passed through the pieces under the figure of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And what that shows is that the fulfillment of the promise in chapter 12 depends on God and on Him alone, meaning it's all of grace. It's all of His power. 
It's all for His glory. God Himself will see to it that what was promised to Abram indeed will be fulfilled. Another way to put this is that this was a unilateral covenant, a covenant entirely dependent on God and on His grace. Just like God is the one who called Abram out of Ur, out of darkness, out of idolatry, just like God was the one who chose to bless Abram, not because of anything lovely about Abram, but rather just because God chose him, but simply as an act of God's grace, God would be the one to bear the responsibilities and the obligations of this covenant. This was God's way of saying he himself would pay the price for the covenant rebellion of Abram's descendants. You see, if this covenant's broken for, for any reason, God is saying he would be the one to pay the price. He would be the one to pay the price in blood. And one biblical scholar I read this week remarked this moment saying this, at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on His Son, Jesus. At that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on His Son, Jesus. So God would later make covenants with Moses, with David, and finally the, the new covenant, a king who would reign forever. That was ratified through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. It was through His blood and sacrifice, the Son of God dying on the cross, that sinful man could be reconciled to the God that we've sinned against. So the death of Jesus, the Son of God, was the fulfillment of the covenant made with Abram in Genesis 15. At the cross, in the promised land of Israel, in the holy city of Jerusalem, God Himself, in the body of Jesus, passed through the pieces, as he laid down his life willingly to pay the penalty for those who've sinned against God. See, the good news of Jesus Christ is that Christ died for our sins. He paid the debt for the sin that we owe God for sinning against the God who created us. The good news of the gospel, why we sing for joy at the blood of Jesus Christ, is that Christ paid the penalty for our unfaithfulness. A debt and a penalty that we could not handle on our own has been paid for us. We did nothing to deserve it. We didn't ask for it. Before we knew Christ, we were going the opposite way, quite happy living in our sins, not seeking after God, not seeking after righteousness, seeking to justify ourselves before God. And it was God alone who saved us. It was God alone and His amazing grace that opened up our eyes to see the beauty of Christ who saved us and filled us with His Holy Spirit. It's God's grace that we've come to see Jesus paying the penalty for our sins. In our place, condemned, He stood, willingly taking the punishment that you and I deserve for our unfaithfulness to God. Jesus alone, the only one to ever live who was perfect in holiness, perfectly faithful to God, without sin, yet He willingly took upon Himself the curse of sin. You see, on the cross, the covenant curse fell completely on Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul writes about in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, a great passage to go and read later. Let me read it for us now. Here's how the Apostle Paul reflects on Jesus Christ taking on a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, through his death on the cross, Christ took the curse of sin upon himself. The one who was at without sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Through his resurrection from the dead, he secures new life, everlasting life with the God who created us in the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth if we would turn and put our trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have repented of your sin against God and put your faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead, then this story of Genesis chapter 15 is your history. It's your story. It's God's plan of redemption that found you. The promise of Abraham coming to the nations, to the Gentiles. You grafted into this promise, counted as one of those stars in the sky, one of those specks of dust on the ground. You've been made a part of the people of God. You're a part of a long line of descendants of Abraham who would come and know who God is and what He's done for you. Well, at first glance, the history of Genesis 15 and this bloody pathway of sacrifice animals, while it might have seemed foreign to you at first read, for those who are in Christ, we know the significance of a covenant that's ratified by blood. God sealed His covenant with the blood of His Son, Jesus, and we sing for joy about the blood of Jesus Christ. We find hope in what is left, nothing less than a graphic scene of Jesus being crucified and punished for our unfaithfulness. Our assurance of salvation as Christians here this morning, the assurance of forgiveness of sins, the assurance of free righteousness before the God who created us, the assurance of possession of the new heavens and the new earth rest not on us and on our own faithfulness, but on Jesus Christ and His faithfulness. We put our faith in Him, the one who died on the cross and got up from the dead. And all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We find our assurance, not in our own work, we find our assurance in the work of the Son of God who loved us and laid His life down us. We stand in all of God's mercy to us in Jesus. We sing for joy at the grace that we've been shown in Jesus. We look past the trouble and the trials of this present life in hope of the life that is to come, everlasting life with God, and our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And when we doubt, and when we fear, and when we're weak, especially then, we look to Christ for assurance. We find joy in His blood and His sacrifice. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this, I'll overcome nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this, I'll reach my home. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We find assurance 
And we find hope in the blood of the one who loved us and laid his life down for us. So Christian, this week, look to God's word. Look to his son. Find assurance and hope. Let's bow and pray. Lord, we look to you for assurance and hope. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ and we see a scene there that brings us hope, that brings us life, that reminds us of your grace and your love for us and your son, Jesus. Lord, may we not just be those who are familiar with your word, but help us to have faith in you and your word. Help us to turn to you more and more, to look, to grow, and be strengthened in our faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would exalt your son, Jesus, in our lives today and this week. Lord, give us a greater appetite and hunger for your word. God, give us a greater resolve to fill our minds with the truth of your word. May we be a help and encouragement to one another in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.